HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee-owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten-free, stone-ground products. Visit bobsredmill.com today. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. Last month, Hurricane Florence walloped parts of North Carolina. According to the Weather Channel, it was the wettest tropical storm to ever hit the Tar Heel State. So how did the restaurant industry respond? Some helped FEMA weather the storm, while others got to work feeding people on the ground. We just walked in and said, we know how to cook, what can we do? They said, I need you guys to just cook 150 pork loins, and we were just like, uh, okay. (laughs) Now the attention needs to be on Florence's long-term effect on North Carolina's farming community. The general mood of farmers is one of certainly resilience and almost feels like it's the normal course of business to just get hit by a gigantic hurricane and need to just keep on going. So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome award-winning cookbook author, New York Times Magazine on-dessert columnist, and all-around baking guru, Dory Greenspan. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Dory about her new cookbook, Everyday Dory, the art of being a great communicator, and we'll hear plenty of Julia moments from Dory. Stay with us. We'll be right back. In just two weeks, the fourth annual Julia Child Award will be presented to chef duo Mary Sue Milligan and Susan Feniger, a Border Grill and Two Hot Tamales fame at the Food History Weekend Gala at the National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. on November 1st. Go to juliachildaward.com for links to purchase tickets to this public fundraising event. 
It's a not-to-be-missed, magical, and delicious evening celebrating the honorees, good food, and raises precious funding to preserve American culinary history. In the first part of Inside Julia's Kitchen, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Today, there are really two Julia themes converging in one. The first is baking. Clearly, Julia was a big fan of baking. She invested a lot of time learning the art of baking bread, tarts, pies, and cakes. First the French way, and then from hundreds of top professional bakers. This desire to explore the topic deeply led to her Baking with Julia PBS television series. It picked up on the format of her prior popular series, Cooking with Master Chefs, which brought chefs right into Julia's home kitchen to share their recipes and tips. But while it followed this model, Baking with Julia became, well, its own thing. Maybe it's the passion with which the guest chefs delivered their dishes. Maybe it's how baking nourishes our souls. And maybe it's because the companion cookbook was so comprehensively good. The second theme is being a teacher. Julia told Dory Greenspan, in preparation for working together on Baking with Julia, it's not for fluffies. This was a version of something Julia often said and often is misconstrued. Julia wanted people to take food and cooking seriously. She didn't mean you couldn't have fun or that you had to be a pro. But she also didn't intend for her work to be something you watched only for entertainment. She genuinely wanted you to learn something, then cook something, and share it with family and friends. As I said, these two themes converge today with our guest, Dory Greenspan. Dory is special because she's a terrific writer, and she's special because she embodies many Julia characteristics. Like Julia, she's passionate about baking. She's also a natural teacher and great communicator. Probably why her collaboration with Julia went so well. Fast forward to today, and Dory Greenspan has blazed her own trail well beyond her collaboration with Julia, having become a household name with a huge following. And just as Julia brought you into her world, Dory does the same thing. And now Dory's done it again with another very personal pull up a seat at her table and share her favorite dishes, winner of a cookbook, Everyday Dory. It's full of nourishing, personal, and authentic recipes, presented as Dory always does, with thorough but simply explained guidance to ensure success in your own kitchen. So we're in for a treat today as we dive into Dory's world and also go down memory lane with one of the best cookbook and recipe writers around. Welcome to the podcast, Dory. Oh, Todd, thank you so much. It's great to be with you, and um, I'm so excited that we're going to get to talk about Julia because, as you know, she's so important to me. I do know, but let's, before we talk about Julia, let's keep talking about you and this new book because that's kind of the exciting moment in time for your life. So tell us more. What's, what was the inspiration for this book? So this book, Everyday Dory, it's kind of, the title says it all. It's Everyday Dory, The Way I Cook. And it's rare. This is my 13th cookbook, my baker's dozens. Um, (laughs) And most of my books, as you know, have been about baking. And I cook. I cook every day. You know, I, I grew up with the adage, not even the adage, it was this, the the rule, you couldn't have dessert until you had your spinach or until you ate dinner. <laughs> and so, in fact, I cook. 
And I've done one other book that's been a complete cookbook, you know, a soup to desserts book. And that was um, Around My French Table. But since that time, I've continued to cook. And in fact, my cooking has what's changed. And I wanted the opportunity to share what I'm cooking every day. Well, that I wanted to pick up on that because you, you said you wanted to share. And particularly recently, a lot of your books are quite personally based. And I, I wanted to ask you, why does it, is that just something that comes natural? Or why did you say, I'm going to make it personal? It, it is something that comes naturally to me. And I also think that, well, food is about sharing. You know, some of us cook for ourselves. Um, many of us cook for family and friends. And it's interesting that when it comes to baking, which, as I said, you know, I, most of my work has been in baking, I think we only bake to share. It's rare that we bake only for ourselves. And so sharing has always been part of my work. And the way I think about my food food <laughs> is yeah. I, I think of it as elbows on the table food. That, that We cook to nourish ourselves and others. But I like to think that we cook to bring people around the table so that we're sharing food, but we're also sharing an experience. So when I say elbows on the table food... I imagine people sitting around the table and staying there, enjoying their meal and enjoying each other, passing their plates around, telling stories, sitting at the table long after dessert is just a bunch of crumbs. And so it is personal for me, and it is about sharing in every way. And is that kind of the yardstick by which you pick the recipes is you, you thought about those things that you like having people's elbows on the table when you're serving them? Yes. And also, you know, Todd, writing a cookbook is a pretty selfish endeavor because <laughs> I get to choose what I want in the book. So this is really, and, and this is, I think this must be true of most cookbook authors that the food, I mean, unless you're doing a historical cookbook or you're doing a survey cookbook, a, a cookbook represents the author's taste, the author's style, the author's way of cooking. Um, so the recipes were chosen because, well, I love them. And would you say these are recipes that you do make all the time? Yes. And as I, you know, I, I mentioned that my cooking has changed. I'm lucky enough to live in three places. I live in New York City, I live in Paris, and I live in a tiny town in Connecticut. And recently, maybe the past eight years or so, we've spent a lot more time in Connecticut. And so my cooking has changed out of necessity. I have there's one great specialty store nearby, but essentially I'm shopping in the supermarket these days. So mm. my food is kind of pantry, more pantry and fridge food than ever. And the kind of cooking that I'm doing is very down to earth. My cooking has never been technique driven. 
Um, but now it really uses very easy to find ingredients and really does feel more everyday. So what sort of an example of that, especially thinking about we've moved into autumn and sort of looking at the book, it seems relatively timeless. You can sort of pick out your seasons, but, um, you know, obviously your book tour is coming up. What what are the recipes that you really come to, you know, that are both representative and also sort of seasonally appropriate? So <laughs> there's, there's one recipe that I've kind of worn out and the book isn't even published um, <laughs> as, as, as we're we're speaking. I'm just minutes away from publication. Um, the oven charred tomato stuffed peppers. So I feel like not only is, okay, the dish is beautiful. It's beautiful raw. It's beautiful baked. It's delicious. It's satisfying. But it kind of encompasses, I think, the spirit of my cooking in that it's an arts and crafts project. So you you construct this dish more than depend on any kind of skill. And it has a surprise. And I love when any dish has something surprising and it's something unexpected. So from the bottom up, it's a half of a bell pepper. And it's so much fun when you use different colored peppers. Mm. And then there's a breadcrumb mixture that you can't see. It's You just tuck it into the pepper, and it has anchovies in it. So you don't so much taste anchovy, anchovy, as you think, hmm, this is good. What is this? And then on top of that, there are some pieces of lemon, and there are herbs, and then the tomatoes. So it's kind of a put-together. It's a little, as I said, an arts and crafts project. It just goes, everything happens in the oven. The oven softens everything, chars the top, brings all the flavors together. And it's a great dish for fall. And it's a very me dish because you can make it ahead. You can do your little project and tuck it away in the the refrigerator. You can serve it straight out of the oven. You can serve it warm. You can serve it at room temperature. So this dish, I, I just made it the other night for, we were eight people around the table, and I made it as a starter. But it could be a side dish. It could be with a salad. It could be a light lunch. It could be good for brunch. This is, this is, and this is a typical everyday Dory dish. Yeah, I just wrote down three words that I think define what you just described, but I think they apply to so much of what you write. You're talking about how this dish is super versatile. There's a certain simplicity and straightforwardness to it. You don't have to have a degree in culinary arts to prepare it. But then there's that little surprise twist with the anchovy that does serve to delight. And I think I can think about so many things of your recipes that I'm familiar with, and they all have those qualities, which I think is probably why people are so excited about your cookbooks. Well, thank you. You know, this is fall is such a great time to be cooking. And it's just as we move into heartier um, dishes, as as our food becomes more brown, <laughs> which yeah. is the color that I love in, in, in food. Um, it feels so homey. But there are... Little surprises everywhere. There's a caramelized onion galette 
and you cut it and you think, mmm, great. You know, brown onions, a good crust that's so easy to make. The only time a galette is right is when it's imperfect. Um, <laughs> but there's a little Parmesan underneath it. That surprise. There's a stew that has a beef stew that um, just at the last minute, as I was putting it together, I opened my fridge and actually my freezer and there were cranberries left over there. And I thought, hmm, puckery, tart. And I just threw them into the stew pot and they added such an interesting tanginess to the the sauce. So again, another surprise. I love that stew. It's actually what I made with the peppers the other night. But I gave it a name that's so long that I'll never remember it. It's subtly spicy, softly hot, slightly sweet beef stew. <laughs> Why'd you give it such a long name? You could have just called it stew with cranberries. Oh, I could have, but then what about the ginger and the star anise and the little remolata, the little herbs um, that go on top at the end with the orange peel? Mm. Now, there's a lot going on in that stew. (laughs) Well, like you said, it's your personal book. You call it whatever you like. Thank you. So on that note, you've, you've actually just given us a little menu, but you haven't talked about the last course. And I love that the book comes with this special rule. And so I wanted you to share what the special rule is and, and why did you include it? Well, just so I know exactly what you're talking about. So I love when people play around. I love when they take my recipes and do whatever they want with them. And so there really are no rules except one and that is there must be dessert and so I mean dinner isn't dinner without something sweet to finish it and so there is a dessert chapter of course there's a dessert chapter in Everyday Dory and they too are very simple desserts Um, poached pears which um, are poached in white wine, which you don't you don't often see. Um, there's a hot fudge sundae that's so fabulous, and there's a dessert that I'm I'm going to be making for Thanksgiving, and I hope that others will too. It's a it's called the triple layer parsnip and cranberry cake, wow. and I I started out making my favorite carrot cake. And then I thought about parsnips. You know, they kind of look like white carrots. And so I made a carrot and parsnip cake. And then I realized that the the parsnips were just more interesting than the carrots. And so this became an all parsnip cake with a cream cheese frosting, the kind you would use with a carrot cake. And then I thought, Mm, this is going to be great for the holidays. And I made a cranberry jam. You know, one of those, you make it so quickly, you put it in the pot and 10 minutes later you have cranberry jam because cranberries have that great kind of gelling quality to them. Yeah. And so this is really a great cake for the holidays. So I have to ask because I find, 
I find parsnips very magical in the sense that they're kind of inedible to me unless you roast them. But when you roast them, they get unbelievably sweet. They're almost like candy. So how how is that how you do it in this cake, or how do you get that sweetness? Well, yes, you're absolutely right. Roasted parsnips are just, you're right, magical is a great word for them. These I grate just as I would grate carrots for a carrot cake, but they are naturally naturally sweet. You wouldn't want to bite into them the way you do a carrot, a raw carrot. They're not interesting like that. Mm. But mixed with the other ingredients and baked, it makes a really good cake. So basically, the sweetness that you get when you roast parsnips comes out in the baking of the cake in some magical process. Yeah, and you also have, you know, all those those bolsters in a cake. There are pecans, there's, um, I use some orange zest, some ginger, and of course, there's there's light brown sugar. So it's that mixture. You can't, I wonder if, if I didn't know it was parsnip, would I call it out immediately? Maybe not. Hmm. Maybe not. Yeah, Maybe it's you. just good. Yeah, you've got all the, I'll call it accelerant in the cake that helps bring out the parsnip sweetness. Mm. So I want to go back to this dessert idea, though, because I think that I think dessert is more in fashion. Obviously, there's a whole popularity of baking and the cupcake trend and cronuts and things like that. But then there's also this force of health and wellness. And I think it's interesting to have a very contemporary author who's very popular advocating for you need to eat dessert when there's the whole anti-sugar crowd and stuff like that. So what's your kind of, that must come up sometimes where someone questions whether this is a good idea or philosophy. Yeah, it comes up all the time. And my answer is similar, if not the same, um, to what I think Julia's answer was and would be, Mm. which is everything in moderation. So I, I believe in pleasure. <laughs> I believe in treating ourselves. I've tried for years to make dessert a major food group. I know it's <laughs> not. It's not. I know it's not. But, but it is a pleasure. And just having, I don't, I don't recommend a huge wedge of the parsnip cake. I don't think you should eat a double Sunday. you know, ice cream sundae, but a little bit of something sweet just makes us feel better. And also, you know, I've found, and I don't think I'm alone here, if I want a brownie and I have a rice cake instead, I'll have a dozen rice cakes, be unsatisfied, and still want the brownie. So I'd rather have a small piece of something delicious that I really want than constantly trying to find a substitute for it. Well, here, here, you're going to get no argument from me. And I, I love that it is, I described your similarities with Julia, that you have the same philosophy that I, I think you're 100% right. That's exactly what she would say, too. So bravo. Just a little piece, just a little treat. It, that, that's actually how I diet too. I, I do my favorite diet is the chocolate diet where I cut out a lot of things, but I still allow myself chocolate every day because it helps stem off. I definitely don't do rice cakes. <laughs> 
chocolate smudge. All right, cookies. we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk to Dory about her time spent working with Julia. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm always looking for new ways to cook with quinoa. So I turned to Food 52's Genius Recipes column. We talked to its editor, Kristen McGlory, in episode 25, and discovered a recipe for gluten-free, crustless quiche using quinoa. Vegetarian, too. Genius. For the recipe, search quinoa and kale crustless quiche on food52.com. And while you're online, Bob's Red Mill has you covered, too. Visit bobsredmill.com today and use the discount code Julia's Kitchen Pod, all one word in all caps, for valuable savings on organic quinoa. Welcome back. We're talking to award-winning cookbook author Dory Greenspan about her new cookbook, Everyday Dory, and about her relationship with Julia Child. All right, before we get into Julia, Dory, I wanted you have this really wonderful relationship and seemingly endless amounts of time to talk with your fans and followers. So I, I have to know the secret. How on earth do you manage that so well? Well, I don't have endless time. None of us does. But I like talking to people who are interested in food. For me, it's very easy to keep in touch with people. Um, and, and social media has changed the world, of course, and it's changed. I mean, it made it possible for me to be in touch with my readers. But, uh, you know, like when I go out on book tour, I am so happy to meet people who are interested in what I'm interested in. So I find it, I find it interesting. I learn from followers. Um, I'm always learning from them. I'm always interested, you know, because I'm a pre-internet author, I was writing before social media and before the internet. I never really saw my work being made by other people. Mm. I just, you know, a book would come out, I would know that my mother would buy it, (laughs) <laughs> and I would cross my fingers that people were happy. And it's been so interesting. I've never gotten, I, I still haven't gotten over it. Seeing pictures of what readers have made from my book. I've been fascinated by the changes they've made. There's one baker who always makes a mini version of my recipes. I never thought they could be made so small. <laughs> it's it's always interesting to me. It's I wish I could be in touch more, but I always get something valuable from being in touch with readers. And I'm I'm in awe of people who can have Twitter conversations because I see that you're definitely a frequent tweeter and not just some frequent tweeters are just like you know, broadcasting out whatever they have to say. But I see you having many conversations and interactions. And do you think just certain people's brains are more equipped to handle that? I, f- I find it very hard to do. I don't know. You know, um, my daughter-in-law, is this the first time I've said daughter-in-law out loud like this? 
Um, Maybe. So Congratulations. Son, I saw that on social media, too. That's wonderful yes, news. Yes. So our son was married in September to the fabulous Lin Ling Tao. And sometimes, I mean, Lin Ling's got her, her ears in, and she's listening to a podcast, and she's looking at a magazine, and she's, you know, kind of knowing what's going on around her. And I am stunned. And she just turns to me and says, I grew up with this. But that's exactly my point. You just said you did not, but yet you've been able to embrace it. And maybe you're not as facile as she is, but that's not readily apparent. So you've obviously taken to it, particularly the Twitter thing, which I think is the hardest thing because it takes a very certain kind of facility and quickness, too, to be in conversations with others on Twitter. I think this is like so many things. We do, we end up learning to do things because we like doing them. Mm. I find it interesting. I like being in cyberspace. I think you've got me right. There, there, that I do have that on my Twitter profile. I say I'm a Twitter skeptic, and that's probably what's holding me back, right? You've embraced it. You said, I like it. I'm just going to go with it, and I'm resisting. Mm, resist not. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, actually, I want, knowing that you knew Julia so well, and I knew that Julia, you know, she really died before all this took off. But at the very beginning of the internet, she was definitely a skeptic. I think I don't, she never really explained why. It just seemed like too, I don't even, too much or too pri- unprivate or too too public, I guess it would be. What do you think she would have thought about, about kind of where we are today, particularly for public personalities and social media? You know, Todd, I that's really interesting. I don't know. I mean, Julia was quick to adopt or at least try all kinds of new technology. I mean, mm. I remember one day when we were working, we were planning baking with Julia. She called me. We used to speak every morning. And she called and she said to me, do you have a bread machine? And I said, nope. She said, neither do I. I'm getting one today, and you should, too. She (laughs) said, we have to know how it works. And Julia had a computer really early. And I remember when we were, one, one of the days that we were taping in her house, and my husband, Michael, was there, Julia said to Michael, there's something, Michael's a software guy, um, she said to Julia, some, she, she, Julia said to Michael, something's wrong with my computer. Will you go fix it? Michael thought, oh, I don't want to fix it. I don't want to be responsible for messing up Julia's computer. And so he took a couple of the tech guys from the crew up with him. And they're kind of under Julia's desk looking at wires and things. And Julia walks in and she said, what are you doing? And they said, oh, you know, we're trying to find your problem. She said, well, I want to know everything that you're doing because you won't always be here. I want to know how to fix it. So she was always curious like that. And I don't know that she would have loved the oversharing, but Mm. I think she might have enjoyed the conversations with other passionate cooks. You know, I remember 
being with Julia in the supermarket in Cambridge. And some people came over and said, you're buying a melon. How do you choose a melon? And Julia said, well, you know, you look at the, you want to smell it. You want to touch it like this. You look at where the, the stem was. And I said to Julia, don't you ever want to be able to just shop quietly and not, and she said, no. She said, I really enjoy that people are interested. So she might have found a way, her own Julia-like way, to be a part of the Internet community. Yeah, I can see th- I can see that part and like you said that it gave g- has given you this window into what people are doing with your books and and seeing how they do that and I, and from from knowing what she was like and how much she enjoyed what you just described I I can see that that she would have found her way into the part of it that was not available to her before but really fascinated and motivated her. I I, I buy it. I really it's, it's a fascinating question. I don't know. I don't know. Well, yes, I was asking you to speculate, which you did very eloquently. So I want to ask you one more question, and then and then we're going to hear your Julia moment. And I'm curious what you've you've got ready for us because we've there's so many different ways we could go. But I also was noticing and getting ready for the podcast that you have this special additional personal connection to what I think is quite magical installation of Julia's kitchen, which you worked in. Um, which is now, for those who don't know, in the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. So can you just share with us your your special connection to posterity? Yes. So actually, I have two. But I will just say to anyone who hasn't seen the installation, you must go. Now, I do have a personal connection because that was the kitchen I worked in. And so it's not surprising that as I approached it, I just started to cry. Mm. It's so beautiful. And because there's an endless loop of, of, of wonderful Julia television moments, as you walk toward the kitchen, you hear Julia's voice. It was, I was so moved by it. But there are two things in that kitchen that are very special to me. One is a calico cat that sits on top of Julia's refrigerator. And that was a gift that Michael, our son Joshua, and I gave to Julia for Christmas. And I was so touched to see that she had put it on her refrigerator. We should clarify it's not a real cat, right? That on her phone, her kitchen phone was a, you know, a table, I don't even have, a, I don't have a vocabulary for old phones anymore. <laughs> you know, it sat, it sat on a table and it had various um, uh, spots where you could put people's name in for speed dialing. Kind of yeah. the, the old school equivalent of um, favorites on our cell phones. And it says story G. I was on Julia's speed dial. And that's partly because your series was one of the last ones filmed in her kitchen. So it was sort of first in, last out sort of thing. Yeah. And so I'm right below 
Jeffrey Drummond, who is the producer of the series. And But Julia used that speed dial a lot. We really did talk for years. We talked almost daily. Well, I think that's a really wonderful commemoration of that sort of one of the, her, her later professional chapters and sort of obviously a very key professional chapter for you. And then it's all there. And, and for both people who really love and love sharing with the public and their audience, here it is in the Smithsonian for everybody to see whenever they want. It's a marvelous installation. It really is, and I think it's. If you haven't ever had the chance to go there, it's so worthwhile. It's. It's almost. I mean, this sounds ridiculous, and I don't think Julia would like it being described this way. But it is like a shrine when you f- are there, and particularly with other people, it is a spiritual experience. It, it's interesting that you stay with other people because um, my husband and I went um, when we were in D.C. together. I had tried twice before. Once it was just about to open, and once they were renovating it. I was so frustrated. Um, um, as you're walking around it, you, can, you can't get in, but you can see everything in the way it's installed. You can see other people, and everybody, everybody looked moved by it. It's it felt being there felt like a communal experience. It was lovely. No, I think that's true. It, it it's really a, become a, a wonderful memory of Julia, but of everything that she meant to the general public and all the different kind of things in in the food movement in American history that have converged together. It was definitely inspired and actually you can listen to Paula Johnson and one of the early episodes of the podcast talked about how that actually came together because that's also a lovely story. All right, after the break, Dory's going to share her Julia moment. And as I said, given how much time she spent with Julia, I'm looking forward to hearing what she's picked. So we'll be right back. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Dory, for the record, what's your Julia moment? Oh, Todd, see, I knew this would happen. I knew you would ask this, and I knew I would never be able to answer with one moment. Well, that's okay. Can I, I just like do a few? Yes, please, please. So the first time I met Julia, I actually just wrote about this in my New York Times Magazine column. Um, my first book had just come out. I don't know how, but I got invited to Boston University to be part of a group of presenters doing 
demonstrations. And there was Julia. And I had never met her before. And I made a recipe that was, it was, all I had to do was push the button of a food processor. It was not the best in terms of showmanship, but I was so scared and I thought, well, okay, I can press a button. I'll get through this. And when I finished my demo, the cake was called 15-Minute Magic. I finished my demo and Julia came over and she said, will you have dinner with us tonight? There was a dinner plan for all the presenters and Julia said, I want you to sit with me. And so, I, I, of course I did. <laughs> it's just, um, and at some point, shortly after we sat down, Julia said to me, have you ever seen that Saturday Live episode where Dan Aykroyd imitates me? And I said, Julia, I'm probably the only person in America who's never seen it. And with that, she stood up and she became Julia Im- imitating Dan Aykroyd, imitating herself. <laughs> it was hysterical. She did, and she knew how funny it was. She just had her eyes twinkled the entire time. And I thought, oh, she's a master of so many things. And one of them is making people feel comfortable. Mm. It was a great moment. And that was my introduction to Julia. Well, and masterful. Did she already have in mind working with you? Is that what was part of the the scheme going on there? Todd, I didn't hear you. I said, was that already what... um, was that a close to baking or were several years apart? I was wondering if she was already trying to sort of butter you up to bring you on board. No, that was in 1991 when my first book, Sweet Times, came out. And Julia and I worked on Baking with Julia in 19, I think we started in 94 or the beginning of 95. We taped the summer of 95, and then the book was published the following year. Yeah, so mm. no, that was, that was much earlier. That was our first, our first meeting. Wow. So it was just yeah. a genuine, I like this person, and I want to connect with them, and I'm going to do that by entertaining them. And by, by putting me at ease. Yeah. 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 So my husband claims that Julia taught him to hug. (laughs) That Michael, as warm and wonderful as he is, is not a hugger. But when he came to Cambridge, when I was living in Cambridge doing the taping for the series, Michael came up and met Julia for the first time. And so everybody, of course, entered the side door. You didn't go through the front door in Julia's house. And he opened the side door and Julia was coming down the steps leading to the door and then to the basement. And she saw Michael. She said, you must be Michael. And threw her arms around him, gave him the biggest bear hug. 
And Michael just hugged her back and hugged her every time he saw her after that. She was so warm. Yeah, she just had that magnetism. But she also, you know, you you led this um, interview by talking about Julia saying that our series would not be for fluffies. And it was, for her, it was always about teaching. It was always about, as, as funny as she was, as extraordinary as her timing was. I mean, any comic would have killed for her sense of timing. Mm. She was always looking to find some kernel of something that would teach somebody something, that would help them get better, that would answer a question. And I remember one day she said to me, we're so lucky to work in food. And I thought, yeah, yeah, we're lucky. And I just kind of looked up at her quizzically and she said, we're lucky because we'll never stop learning. She was a, a lifelong student. And I always think about that. It always pushes me a little further. Well, I think those are wonderful moments because they, within them, and as I said, you share her quality for being a great teacher and communicator in the most natural way. And I, I think you talked about three lessons from Julia in your Julia moments about the value of being self-deprecating, the value of hugging, and the value of being a lifelong learner or student. She she was always curious. You know, it, it, sometimes, you know, people will say, I mean, of course they will. They'll say, oh, Julie was so funny. Yes, she was funny. But she also knew how to use that humor to, yes, make people comfortable as she did with me, but also to help people learn, to get people interested so that she could then teach them. It, it was her being naturally curious helped her be a teacher, but then she was also a student all the time. So she she could she was constantly swapping places from being teacher to t student and teacher to student. And I think that also made it very accessible for other people. Absolutely. So she said to me one day, um, she put her arm around me and she said, we make such a good pair because we're just a couple of home bakers. And, I mean, here was Julia, who had trained at Cordon Bleu, who had been cooking endlessly and studying cooking and teaching cooking and for decades. And yet she never thought of herself as a chef. She always thought of herself as a home cook that she was the home she was the home cook just as her viewers her readers and her students were well that's right well dory thank you so much for joining us and sharing about your new book and about yourself and about all your time with julia it was a delight it was a delight for me thank you so much todd it's so good to talk to you as always dory all right. Thanks, everyone else. Thanks for listening. 
Do you have a a favorite Dory Greenspan recipe or moment? My favorite Dory Greenspan recipe is her San Pierre poppy seed cake. I just even mouth salivate thinking about it. And also, I had the great honor of eating canard a la presse at Danielle with her. Let us know what yours are. Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact juliachildfoundation.org. You can follow us on Facebook, on social media. Our handles are at juliachild on Facebook, at juliachildfoundation, all one word, on Instagram, and at juliachildjcf on Twitter. And my Twitter handle is at tshulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. Dory will be crisscrossing the country, even making it to Canada on her book tour, which starts October 22nd in New York, for the new Everyday Dory, a Rux Martin book published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. If you go to everydaydory.com, you will get all the details. The book launches October 23rd, and you can find it at your favorite online or bricks-and-mortar bookseller. If you want to join the crowd in conversation with Dory on social media, her handle is at Dory Greenspan. It's D-O-R-I-E Green S-P-A-N on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook alike. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lawrence Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss upcoming episodes. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after on Stitcher, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.